This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. I don't know if you've heard before the story of the preacher who is traveling across the world. And um, when he lands, they ask him to speak straight away. And he's not really quite prepared. And he gets up in the pulpit and he announces his text. But uh, he's suffering a bit of jet lag. And he calls out his text, which is, uh, Behold, I'm coming to you soon from the book of Revelation. And his mind goes completely blank and he can't think of what to say. So he decides that he will call out again, uh, behold, I am coming to you soon. And his mind is still completely blank. So a third time he thinks, I'll call this out as loudly as I can and something may trigger. And he calls out very loudly, behold, I am coming to you soon. And he calls it out so enthusiastically that he falls out of the pulpit into the lap of the little lady in the front row. And he looks up and he says, I'm terribly sorry. And she says, well, don't apologize. You told me three times you're coming. (laughs) Now, Our piece of Bible is about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his return, something which he promised that he would do. Uh, He promised again and again and again that he would do this. Uh, It is an absolutely certain promise of an absolutely trustworthy person, even if it requires great patience on our part. So Jesus said, for example, in John 14, I will come again and take you, my people, to be with me. In Luke 17, he said, the Son of Man will come. Luke 21, the Son of Man will come with great glory. Mark 13, he will come and he will gather his people. Mark 25, he will come and all nations will gather before him and he'll separate people as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. In the parables of Jesus, in the teachings of Jesus, in the teaching of of the letters of the New Testament, again and again and again and again, we're told there is one promise one great promise waiting to be fulfilled, and that is that Christ will come. He said that his coming will be personal. It will be him, the same Jesus who walked the roads of Jerusalem, the same Jesus who calmed the storm, who raised Lazarus, who put children on his knee, that Jesus will come. He said it will be global. It'll be so cosmic that the whole world will see him come at the same time. He said that it will be sudden, like a thief in the night, And he said it would still be predicted like we see leaves appearing in the spring on the trees. He said it would be wonderful for his people, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And it will be terrible for those who are not ready to meet him. To be darkness and coming face to face with the light of Christ will be terrible. Now today, of course, the fact of Christ returning has pretty well gone off the radar for the world. It's just a joke for the world. And it's pretty well gone off the radar for the church as well. I don't know if you saw on the news any of the Whitlam funeral, but there were about a thousand people in the town hall and I think a thousand outside in the square. This is remembering the former prime minister, Gough Whitlam. There was no reference to God. There was no reference to Jesus or faith or hope or anything like that. And I just imagined myself getting up and speaking at that particular funeral and saying something about Christ and his death and his resurrection and his return. And it would have seemed absolutely absurd and laughable. At the other extreme, as Gav has reminded us at the beginning of the service, you've got those kind of fanatics who talk about nothing else but the second coming. People who are drawing up charts and graphs and insane, insane predictions as to when Jesus will come. When Jesus clearly said, nobody knows, 
No one knows, said Jesus, but the Father. So Jesus himself didn't know. There's an area of his ignorance, but he was not ignorant of his ignorance. He knew what area he didn't know. So I guess I'm asking the question as we come to our Thessalonian passage, is it possible to have a sane confidence in the return of Christ, which has a good effect on your life today and not a wacky effect on your life today? And the answer is it is. The Apostle Paul taught the Thessalonian Christians 2,000 years ago in a very short three-week mission a great deal about Christ, including that he would come again, and he left the Thessalonians unwillingly because he was thrown out of the town, but he left them looking forward to the coming of Christ. Last week we saw in the end of chapter 4 that the Thessalonians were worried about Christians who might die and miss the return. And the Apostle Paul says, don't worry about those who die. They won't miss Christ. They go first to Christ. And when he comes, he will bring them with him and gather those who are left in the world. And all of us will be together with the Lord. Now this week, the Apostle Paul is writing to Christians who are very much alive. And he is basically urging us to live in the security of Christ's coming. Okay, so last week, concern about the dead and comforting words. Today, what to say to the alive, like us, and how to live securely. In our Bibles, 1 Thessalonians 5, I want to divide the 11 verses into three points. First is the power of Christ's second coming, verses 1 to 3. Then I want to talk about being safe and wise now, 4 to 8, and then the power of Christ's first coming, verses 9 to 11. Now, I've, I think, spoken on these verses a number of times. I've just been revolutionized by my preparation this week in this passage. So um, think with me, uh, work with me. I think these verses are wonderful. First of all, the power of Christ's second coming, verses 1 to 3. Look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Brothers, about times and dates. We don't need to write to you for you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Times, dates. Some of you who know your Christian faith pretty well know that these are the two words for time, chronos, from which we get chronology, and the word kairos, which is perfect moment. So he's saying we don't need to write to you about the time, the clock time. We don't need to write to you about when is the perfect moment because you know perfectly well that you know that Christ will come like a thief. In other words, this is the irony. You know that you don't know when he'll come. Back in chapter 4 verse 13, he was writing to Christians, as I say, who die before Christ comes And he says, I need to fill in the gaps because you don't know what's happened to them. Now he writes and he says, I don't need to fill in any gaps because you know perfectly well that Christ will come any time. Now on this um, topic of when and where, uh, those of you who are studying the um, commentary by John Stott in the Bible Speaks Today, it's a great commentary. But on this section, John Stott says that the Thessalonians were worried and unsure of the time. I think the text says the exact opposite. Therefore, don't have a Bible study about how the Thessalonians were nervous and worried. 
It seems to me the apostle is saying to the Thessalonians, you're clear and you're calm. And the only thing I want to underline for you is you're very, very safe and blessed. So when it comes to the times and the seasons, chapter five, verse one says, Paul, you are on the ball. Now, the phrase which he uses for the return of Christ in verse two is the day of the Lord. And Gav has helpfully shown us in the introduction this evening that this phrase, day of the Lord, is a very pregnant Old Testament phrase which the prophets used to speak largely of judgment, mostly of judgment. This is a day where God will come and deal with his enemies. And I think the Apostle Paul uses it here for the Thessalonians because he wants them to remember that they've got lots of enemies and God will deal with them. Paul had enemies, God will deal with them. Do the Thessalonians remember that it was enemies of the gospel that threw Paul out early? God will deal with them. Are the Thessalonians still facing enemies in the city of Thessalonica? God will deal with them. Now, before I leave this, therefore, this point about the day of the Lord, let me say that the prophets in the Old Testament predicted the day of the Lord and the people of the day mocked them and said, this will never happen. Everything is always the same. There'll never be trouble. There'll never be a removal from the promised land. There'll never be trouble from the Assyrians. There'll never be trouble from the Babylonians. And the, the Old Testament prophets spoke the truth. There was a day, there was a day of uh, judgment and of discipline. And I think we should take heart because the New Testament apostles and the Lord Jesus himself is also telling us that there is a day of the Lord and we must learn from history to take seriously what God says. Uh, the Old Testament prophets were laughed at. Let's be careful that we don't laugh at the New Testament prophets. Now, what does Paul say about this day? He says, it's going to be, first of all, unexpected, like a thief. Thieves come frustratingly by surprise. Jesus himself used this illustration of his return being like the thief in the night. The apostle Paul borrows it and he says, look, just as a thief is out of your control and he breaks in and he takes stuff which is yours from your car or your house or your handbag or walks off with stuff, when you're not watching and you're not thinking and you're not ready, so Jesus' return is outside your control. In other words, the return of Jesus is never going to be on the news. Don't expect one night that on the channel that you watch, there will be an announcement, by the way, get ready tonight because Christ is coming. That'll never happen. It'll never happen. The second illustration that Paul uses in verse 3 is that it will be inescapable or inevitable like a pregnancy. And just as the unbelievers, says Paul, are thinking peace, security, nothing will ever change, life is very even, all is well, nothing can disrupt us, then suddenly, says Paul, destruction. You notice that this is a kind of a negative illustration thief and a negative illustration of destruction because he's emphasizing that this day of the Lord is aimed largely in this particular argument at the danger that unbelievers are in. Jesus said on one occasion that his return would be like the days of Noah. And I used to think the days of Noah were dreadful, dreadful days. And I guess they probably were. But Jesus says in the days of Noah, they were eating, drinking, getting engaged and having weddings. Now, 
most people here this evening are eating, drinking, occasionally getting engaged and having weddings. There's nothing sinister about that. And what Jesus is saying is that in the days of Noah, everything was so normal. The word of God was going out and everything was so normal and everybody said there's nothing to listen to, there's nothing to take notice of, and then bang, the rain came. And a tiny minority of people who'd been listening to the word of God were spared. And a very great tragic number who were not listening were lost. Now, when we talk like this, every normal Christian, I hope you're one of them, every normal Christian will ask the question, maybe often, can we really be right about this? You must ask yourself that question. You must say every now and again, can I really be right? If you've been to the beach today and you see masses of people at the beach and nobody is thinking about God, the maker, and nobody is thinking about uh, the judgment and the return of Christ, you must say to yourself every now and again, am I completely wacky to be thinking like this when so few believe and so few are affected? And what you'll have to do, and I have to do this myself, is remind yourself that the person who taught this so clearly, Jesus Christ, was always truthful, always kept his promises, hated dishonesty, hated deception. You'll also have to remind yourself that the people around the world, around the city, around your neighbourhood, who look quite innocent, and they are helpless and they do need a shepherd, but you'll find that they're actually moving away from Christ. And if you bring the message of Christ to them, they'll be evasive and elusive unless God is working on them. And you'll also have to remind yourself that the day of the Lord is the reminder in the Bible that God, if you believe in God, is just, that he's not going to allow everything to go bad forever, that he will bring justice, very wonderful justice. He will not leave evil unpunished. And so Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, this second coming of Christ is going to be a day for you of great comfort because God, Christ will come and he will deal with justice. That's the first point, the power of the second coming. The second point is verses five to eight. This is what I've called safe and wise today. Now, you see how Paul has said in verse three, they will not escape. He now says in verse four, you are a different matter. You're a different matter. Uh, The unbeliever, whether they recognize this or not, has their life slipping away from them, like sand through an hourglass, and there is a judgment ahead. The believer, through the sheer kindness of Jesus Christ, has masses of life in front of them and no judgment. This incredible shift has taken place by putting your faith in Christ. Instead of having life behind you and judgment in front of you, you now have judgment behind you and life in front of you. That's why Christ totally changes a person's condition. And the apostle says in verse four, you're not in darkness if you're a believer. The day of the Lord is not going to surprise you. Oh, of course, you don't know, of course, whether it's tomorrow or next year or next decade. You don't know when exactly it is. But when it comes, it's not going to deprive you like a thief. So you may not know the day of the return, but it's not a surprise that he will return. You're not in the dark about this. And the reason that you're not in the dark, verse 
4 and 5, this is very comforting. Stay with me. He says, because you're sons and daughters of the light. And Paul is sort of stretching the illustration of, of light here. He says, you're not in the dark. You're actually sons of light. Uh, for the unbeliever, the day of Christ's coming is going to be a day of terrible darkness. They're in the dark about when he's coming and it's going to be a day of darkness. But for you, you're not in the dark. He is coming. You know he's coming. And because you're a son of light or you're a daughter of light, it's going to be a very, very wonderful occasion. So notice the power of verse 5. If you've put your hope in Christ, you're a son or daughter of light. In other words, you're in God's family. How do you get into somebody's family? Well, you have to be born into it or you have to be adopted into it. And if your hope is in Christ, says Paul, you're in the family. God has adopted you in, he's brought you into the family and he's made you his child. So the apostle is not saying, as you expect him to say, Christ is coming, believers, therefore be very bright. Come on, brighten up. He's not saying that. He's saying, you're sons of the light. God has brought you in. You're, you're included in this. He's not saying you should earn your safety by being exceptional between now and the return of Jesus. He's saying, no, God has done this for you. He's brought you into the light. He's saying that you should be thankful, deeply, wonderfully thankful. So with the privilege, you see, of being sons of light, this is what he says, verse six, let's not go to sleep. And he uses a new meaning for the word sleep. Back in chapter four, he talked about sleep as death. If a believer sleeps, if a, if a believer dies. Now he uses a completely different word and a completely different meaning. And he says, because you're in the light and Christ is coming and it's going to be wonderful, don't forget it. Don't drift off. Don't fall asleep about this. Don't drop the doctrine. Verse seven and eight, don't get drunk. Most drunkenness, as you know, happens at night. Uh, but since he says we belong to the light, we belong to the day, don't lose your mind. Don't get overpowered. Keep remembering something wonderful is coming. Let that fill your mind more than booze. And the third thing he says in chapter 5 verse 8 is let's remember our security. Let's think about our salvation. Take hold of the armor of Christ. He's your security. He's the one who's given you your faith, your hope, your love. In other words, Keep remembering what's coming up for you. Now, now, friends, let me just stop at this point and say, when you read these verses and you have got to give a sermon on this, it's incredibly tempting to take these verses and twist them and have a big sort of beat up where I say something to you like this. Come on, Christians, why are you so sleepy? Why are you so groggy? Why are you so feeble? Don't sleep, don't get drunk, put on your armor. And then you have a sort of a 10-minute beat-up from the preacher about Christians who are slack and go to parties and are wimpy. But the Apostle Paul isn't doing that at all. He's not doing that at all. And there's at least two reasons why that's the wrong thing to do. One, that kind of beat-up lasts about an hour. You'll, you'll forget it by the time you get home. Second, it's not Paul's point. He's not angry with the Thessalonians. He doesn't have any reason to be angry. And he's not so naive as to think that their performance waiting for Christ is going to be the key to the world. This is what he says. He says, and listen to me very carefully. If you're a Christian, you're in the world and Christ may come anytime. He may come before this sermon is over. Bring it on, you say. 
He may come before the week is out. You may have some plans for next year, university, wedding, study, travel, kids. None of it may happen. Something more wonderful may happen, which you'll never regret. And the Apostle Paul is saying this, you're in the world, Christ may come any time, don't forget that, and, and don't forget it, not because your slackness will make it a terrible day when Christ comes, but because your sonship will make it a wonderful day when he comes. Let me illustrate this and see if it makes sense. Imagine you've got some greatly loved family members who live overseas coming to stay with you and you love their company and they love you. They unstoppably love you. And they say to you, we're coming any day in the next six weeks. We don't know when it'll be because we've got to get off work and we've got to get the right flights and a couple of things got to fall into place. So we may turn up any time in the next six weeks. Now, friends, is that an incentive to you to forget that they're coming? No, it's an incentive for you to remember, be glad about it, and put the preparation in that'll make it a joyful return. I mean, making some beds and putting out some flowers and that sort of thing. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. When it comes to living in the world, the most important thing you can do is to remember that because you have been brought into the light and therefore it's going to be a safe and a wonderful thing, live in the world with that gripping your brain and your heart. Okay, now the third thing, the last thing is the power of Christ's first coming. He finishes in verses 9, 10, 11 by talking about the first coming of Christ, which is, as you probably know, the key to the second coming. In other words, Christmas is the key to the parousia. So the return of Christ is meant to be a double comfort to the Christians. This is what Paul is saying. One, God is going to deal with all the enemies. He's going to deal with all those who wage warfare against God and against God's people. This is a huge issue, especially in the world today, where Christians are being killed for their faith. God will deal with that. He'll deal with it. He'll compensate perfectly. And the second reason this is a great comfort is because when Jesus comes, he's going to bring all the joy and all his plans for his children. So everything which has seemed wonderful to you in this world will be a billion times improved, and everything which has been seen to be terrible to you in this world is going to be a billion times compensated for. That's what Jesus is saying. And the proof of this in verses 9 and 10 is that he says, God did not appoint us for wrath, but for salvation. Okay, so when God thought about you, the believer, before the foundation of the world, he said, I'm appointing that person for salvation. That's where I want them to arrive. And behind the call of Christ to follow him, which I think most of you have heard and most of you have responded to and you've begun to follow Christ, behind that call and the decision to follow is God the planner. You know, have you ever planned for something? Ever planned for somebody's birthday? Ever planned something special as a gift? Here is God, the planner, the great ultimate planner behind the creation of the universe, planning for his people to get salvation, not wrath. He's excited about it. It delights him. That's the sort of God he is. The problem is that you and I deserve wrath. So how are we going to get salvation? The answer is in verse 10. 
it's because Jesus Christ died for us. It's a historical fact that Jesus died and it's a theological fact that he died for us. So at his first coming, he came to die for us and he came to die for us so that at his second coming, we might stand before him without fault and with great joy. If you want to be safe at the second coming of Jesus, you need to grasp what he did at his first coming. If you've grasped what Jesus did at his first coming, look forward to his second coming. Look forward to his second coming. And I want to show you how strongly Paul puts this. And what I'm about to say in the last few minutes is complicated and it's controversial. And so some of you will stay with me and get this and you'll be glad. And some of you may sleep or get drunk or... No, some of you may miss this. But um, I want to just show you how the Apostle Paul finishes this remarkable section. See if you can follow this. Do you remember in chapter 5, verse 6, he said, don't sleep but be watchful, be alert. I suggested to you what he means by this is not your security for the second coming is going to depend on whether you're alert and watchful, but it's because you're God's children that you're going to be secure. It's your faith in Christ. It's he who will make you secure. Uh, And therefore, keep reminding yourself of the day of Christ because it's going to be terrible for the rejecter and it's going to be wonderful for the receptor. So don't sleep, says Paul, but do watch. Now look at chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says, Christ died for us, so whether we sleep or watch, we may live together with him. You see that? He says in verse 6, don't fall asleep because it's so great. Don't forget it. Do keep watching because it's so great. And then he says in verse 10, Christ died for us so that whether we do this or not, we will live with him. So the death of Christ, you see, is so great that it actually secures our salvation. It's his performance that secures our salvation. It's not our performance. And that's why he closes in verse 11 by saying, therefore, comfort each other with this. See, most commentators think Paul is saying, look, whether you live or die, you're going to be with Christ. And we know that that's true because he said that back in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. That's the argument of last week. But here he's saying something completely different. He's adding something quite new and he uses a new word for sleep. He doesn't use the other word for sleep. He uses a new word for sleep because now he says, I don't want you to drift off because the death of Christ is so wonderful, so powerful, it guarantees your salvation whatever happens. It covers your failures even your failure to be watchful, even your failure to be alert is covered by Christ. Therefore, encourage and build each other up. Now, there's something to be said, isn't there? The cross is the thing that we exalt, rejoice in, and cannot really get to the bottom of because it's so great, even though we sing about it and we think we know everything about it, we don't know everything about the cross. There are depths and heights and breadths and lengths about the cross which we don't yet understand and we need to appreciate it. And here is one example of the Apostle Paul saying, do you understand it's the cross of Christ at the first coming which was so wonderful and so successful and so powerful, it will secure you for the second coming. Whatever takes place between the first and the second. And therefore, be alert and grateful in the waiting because it is that wonderful. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
So our comfort, you see, is not our vigilance. It worries me that so many of the commentaries say, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, be vigilant, be vigilant, be vigilant. Otherwise, you'll miss out. The Apostle Paul seems to be saying the opposite. It's Christ's death which makes you secure. It's his performance, not ours. So the great work of Christ's first coming makes you ready for the second. And you need to remind yourself when you get some distractions this evening and some temptations this evening, and they do come often at night, that something bigger is up ahead. Something more wonderful is up ahead. Someone more, more wonderful is up ahead and you are not to lose sight of that. And if you live in the world, you've got a great job of being a signpost to this love of Christ, which he showed at the cross, which makes you ready for heaven. And we've got the huge privilege of pointing people to that love and trying to explain it to people because the lost are going to be very, very badly dealt with when Christ comes and the found are going to be very wonderfully dealt with. And it's all a matter of grace. I was reading recently of a man who was being marched to his execution and the chaplain behind him was reading the old prayer book. And as the chaplain was just droning on, reading all this stuff about heaven and hell, the man who was walking to his execution turned around and said to him, you know, if I believed half what you're saying to me, I would cross the earth on broken glasses to tell people. On broken glass, I would cross the earth to tell people. If I believed half what you're intoning to me. That's always a challenge to us, isn't it? We need to ask the Lord, help us believe our beliefs, doubt our doubts, because we're in danger of believing our doubts and doubting our beliefs. Well, friends, the return of Jesus Christ is not like walking in the desert waiting for an oasis. The return of Jesus Christ is like walking around a swimming pool. We're always one step away from being immersed in the reality of Christ. One step away. He could come any second. He will come, says the New Testament, atomos, in an atom, in a blink. We're just one step away from meeting Christ. His return or our finish. And if you think that all of this uh, is future pie in the sky, I want to remind you that what has happened already through Christ is that we've had the incarnation, we've had the crucifixion, we've had the atonement, we've had the resurrection, we've had the ascension, we've had the coming of the Holy Spirit and global mission. What is soon coming is return, the resurrection of the body, glory, seeing Jesus face to face, the rewards for his people, the new heaven and the new earth. Therefore, comfort one another and build one another up, says Paul with these words. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.